You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Lori Gruen. Lori is the William Griffin Professor of Philosophy and Professor of Feminist, Gender, and Sexuality Studies and Science and Society at Wesleyan University. Her research lies at the intersection of ethical theory and practice with particular focus on issues that impact those often overlooked in traditional ethical investigations. She is the author and editor of over eight books, the most recent one being Entangled Empathy. In this episode, we talk about animality, carceral spaces, school-to-prison pipeline, is animal rights a white thing, teaching in prisons, and much more. Hello, Laurie, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. It's such a pleasure to be here. I enjoy your podcast so much. Such a great, great thing you do. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So let me begin first with this question. Laurie, how did you get interested in philosophy? It's, it's a funny story, really. Um, I think it was a, both a bit of luck and um, also because I'm pretty stubborn. So I, uh, I was young when I went to college and I took a philosophy class and I didn't have any idea what was going on. But because I didn't have any idea what was going on, I was really motivated to try to figure out what was going on. And so I kept at it. I kept at it. And then at some point, I realized, wow, there is tremendous liberatory potential in thinking about these um, philosophical questions in systematic ways. And so I was really moved by terrific professors that I encountered to think about hard but practical philosophical questions that really excited me. So I, I was very drawn to political philosophy and, and ethical questions. Um, and I got interested um, in those questions early on, but then I started to think about them in terms of the, so questions about women and people of color, and I realized by the time I graduated, I, I hadn't actually had a woman professor oh, or wow. a philosophy professor of color, and then I went to graduate school on a fancy fellowship, um, and there too there were no women, and I thought, okay. So I actually took some time away from philosophy. How long? Uh, I was six years away and did activist work and political work. And, but then I really missed philosophy. And so I realized that I, I really was drawn to philosophy despite its exclusions. And so I went back looking for uh, to do work at that time more in feminist philosophy and was able to find um, more diverse philosophers to work with. If any person was to go to your website, they'll see a, a list of books that you have, have written, and they're all around animals' rights. Well, mm-hmm. majority of them are. Mm-hmm. How did you get interested in that topic? I mean, I doubted if they were teaching this in your grad program. <laughs> no, but actually it was in undergrad. So I was really, that's the luck part. Thanks for reminding me. So I ended up taking a, a just a practical ethics course um, with philosopher Dale Jameson, and he was teaching... Animal Liberation, a book by Peter Singer, and it was mind-blowing. And then I got to work with Peter Singer. I mean, I, I have very different views than he has <laughs> at this stage, but 
when I was young and an undergraduate, Peter Singer came to, and so um, I got really interested in those questions really early on. Um, my approach to those questions of animals was was always in, informed by thinking about the ways in which the traditional ethical approaches, either the rights view or the utilitarian view, missed a lot of the story. So I was really interested in thinking about the what I thought of at the time as the emotional or the sort of what I now call empathetic part of the picture that was completely missing from those other stories. But I was thinking about that back when I was an undergraduate. And then it took me a while to sort of articulate what those views were. But um, that was one of the things that was pretty exciting um, to get to think about um, really others. I mean, animals really are others. And to think about what philosophy might have to say about them. And my hope was always that in thinking about those others, that that would shed some important light and provide certain insights into sort of how we structure our uh, social and political relations more broadly. So not only do you do work on animal rights, but you have also... Uh, you also teach in prisons. So I, w- I want to uh, kind of talk about those two things together, and I want to first begin with discussing the analogy between both. So usually there are analogies that are made between animals and black folks, between animals and, and prisoners. What do you see are the dangers of such an analogy? I think that there's an important way in which analogies themselves are always treacherous. Um, Having said that, that doesn't mean that they can't be useful, but I think um, drawing on the work of Frank Wilderson III, who talks about the ruse of analogy in his important book, the idea is that analogies have a way of flattening difference, and that's always a little bit dangerous. And I think that in the case of animals being analogized with black people or prisoners, there's a really long history of the sort of devaluation through analogy, the dehumanization through analogy, abjection through analogy. And so that's really, uh, I think, uh, an important sort of area. And in my work on this, I'm always really specific about highlighting how dangerous these things are. Now, part of the reason they're dangerous is because of the way the human itself um, has been constructed as white. And so I think that's another feature. And we get this in Sylvia Winter, for example. But the idea that that um, whiteness and humanity are constructed as the same kind of thing. So when you have the category of the animal, that's fundamentally the non-human. And when, at least historically, and I think to this very day, we have blackness as subhuman. And so the idea then is that by putting black people or particularly prisoners in the category of animal, that can reinforce the structure of the white human and all others. So that's a big, big danger. The, the comparison has been used to reinforce that division. But having said that, I think there's some important insights. So even though this is really treacherous, dangerous terrain, I, I think there's still important insights that we can get um, in working towards social justice by evaluating the ways that these categories are constructed. You wrote a response when the Cecil, no, it wasn't Cecil the Lion, it was, uh, I believe, the gorilla in the zoo. 
and and Cecil the Lion as well. When When those two cases happened, there was much concern for these animals to the point that lots of people expressed on social media, particularly people of color, expressed kind of analogy of sorts. And this was the analogy that it seems as if America cared more for animals than they care for for black lives. And 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 so in in that way, what people were saying in that response to that is is saying that we are different from animals and we should get more respect than or at least the same kind of respects that animals do. And I think behind that is this notion that we are human and therefore we ought to be treated better than than what animals are treated or given the same respect. So so in some ways that analogy has been employed to at least or to at least disentangle that analogy has been employed to bring about some type of humanization. And I, I wonder what your response is to that. It's a really, really important point. And here, I mean, I'm actually quite um, taken by the work of uh, black vegan activist Sil Coe, who's drawing on work, again, of Sylvia Winter. Um, Sylvia Winter, of course, you'll remember, um, in, in highlighting the ways in which the police violence after the Rodney King um, beating and uh, the riots that occurred, there's this acronym um, that's NHI, no humans involved, which means that there are no, uh, that there are no white people involved. It's basically about um, the way in which black people are not human. And the, and the idea here, which is really, I think, forceful, is that this is still going on. And what ends up happening is that for many activists, the idea, for many black activists, the idea is that, wait, 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 we're, we're human. We want to be sort of in that group. Um, and we don't want to be thought of in, in the animal group. And I think that the idea here is actually to recognize, as I was just suggesting, that the, the category of the human itself um, is not a category in a culture of anti-black racism that is ever going to be available um, in an uncritical way for it's the category itself is constructed as white. So it's necessarily the category is going to preclude um, black people and preclude non-human pe- animals. Um, and so I think that the criticism here that I'm trying to draw is that we need to recognize that these, uh, that together, drawing on the really interesting and important work by Claire Jean Kim, she has a book called Dangerous Crossings, which is, again, about questions about race and animality um, and the way these are really fraught and conflicted, and just as you were saying, um, with the Harambe case or with, with Cecil uh, the lion, um, that these cases are ones in which the powers that be, the white powers that be, can have people arguing amongst themselves and there's no real worry for them because they don't, that, that's not their thing. So what Claire Jean Kim calls for is what she calls an ethics of avowal. And what I was suggesting in some of my responses to this is that these aren't zero sum. We don't have to throw lions or gorillas, <laughs> as it were, sort of under the bus. Um, and at the same time, it's a really important way of recognizing how these categories reinforce exclusions and abjection. Um, Having said that, there is something very serious about the way in which at least most of the animal advocacy community uh, is unaware of their very um, deep anti-black racism and general, often 
there's there's sexism as well. So I don't want to suggest that that this is a common view amongst those who advocate for animals, but I do think it's important to recognize that there's an important site of contestation that we don't want to just accept the category of the human as one that's a biological category as opposed to a deeply political and social category. I I just thought of something, and I I hope it's not too provocative. So I'm going to ask you anyway. All right. So what do you say about this assumption, or at least this particular claim, that certain kinds of activism, for example, animal rights, is an issue for privileged folk? What would you say to that? I mean, I think that there's something that needs to be unpacked there. And I think that there is a lot of ways of thinking about what that means. I think on the one hand, if you look at those people who are the spokespeople for these particular movements, you'd see often that these are people who are people of privilege. But if you look at the people who are doing on the ground work, or in the case of climate change, those people who are going to be most impacted most quickly, those are not privileged people. We're already looking at climate refugees all across the world. These are not privileged people. Um, These are people from poor communities. These are people who are losing their livelihoods, losing their lands. These are native peoples. So I, I, I don't think that climate change is an issue in particular, and I think you know what we do see too in the social uh, scientific literature is that uh, people of color are, are right on it. They're right on this problem of climate change. So um, I think too, though, and importantly, this is something again that I get from a group of really sort of inspiring black animal activists is that it's really upsetting for those folks to be ignored over and over and over again by other people of color who are saying that this is an issue that's for white people because this is their issue. And so then how do they get um, ignored? Now, again, having said that, there is a problem of representation that I think a lot of people have been working on for a long time in terms of who speaks for these is- about these issues and who speaks for these, these movements. And I do agree that that's a problem. But I really don't think that these issues are issues necessarily for privileged people or for white people only. Because, as I said, there are a lot of non-white activists for animals. And there are certainly many, many, many different people who are working for climate justice. So let's go back to the the analogy concern. And being careful with the analogy, you do suggest that there are some similarities, similarities between particularly animals and and prisoners, and that has to do with captivity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, the idea of captivity is, I think, a really important idea that's been overlooked in the philosophical literature. And so I've been trying to bring it more to to the attention of of other uh, philosophers and other scholars. I mean, one of the things that I think is really important in thinking about captivity is that it isn't just being confined or enclosed, but it's also about being controlled. And that question of control is, I think, an important one, because what it does when you control another, you're actually denying them certain kinds of possibilities for expressions of their freedom or their autonomy or their choice, however you want to sort of describe that. And, and I think that that's something that applies in, the, in both the case of 
captive prisoners and also in the case of non-human animals. And so I think it's really instructive and insightful to be like, so you can get a lot of insight to thinking about these things together. So there's the question about control. You get a certain sense of the, a notion of domination and the ways in which questions about the possibility of interest violation can occur in a captive environment um, if you if you look at these things together. I have to confess that you know when I first started working with incarcerated folks, I wasn't I was really nervous ab- again about them wondering like finding out that I, I was interested in questions about our relationships with other animals for the reasons that I mentioned before about the abjection and dehumanization that's so much a part of you know. Criminals are often compared to animals, can't control their desires, need to be controlled, what have you. But it turns out that at least those that I've been working with are really open to thinking about these issues in the same, in the same way and, and kind of excited to think about how there are these institutions of captivity that operate um, and that there are really kind of shocking parallels. The other thing I want to say about this that's really important in my thinking lately is the the question about lock the door and throw away the key, which is kind of the idea that these humans who are in captivity and animals, many animals that are in captivity are disposable, that we don't have to think about them. They're out of out of our sight. We don't have to be concerned about their interests or their well-being. And so in some ways, that's already the norm with other animals. They're here to be used and discarded. And that is also that mentality of disposability um, seems to to spill over into um, our general attitude towards those who are the victims of our current system of mass incarceration. Are are carceral spaces only limited to physical prisons? I don't think so. I think it's really interesting to think about this notion of captivity as sort of being a broader set of carceral space. So I think you could think about, for example, laboratories where they do research on other animals as a carceral space. And there's some really interesting work that some critical geographers are doing right now to try to analyze these spaces. I think refugee refugee camps can also be analyzed in terms of a carceral space. And that's an increasing problem, both given sort of the kind of mass violence that's occurring in various parts of the world, but also to go back to this idea of climate refugees. So I think carceral space is is sort of canonically a, a prison space, but I think we can think of other kinds of space um, that confine and control humans and other animals as, as also being carceral space. So, so let me just try to prove to you that I've read some Foucault. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are, are schools carceral spaces? Right. So, okay. So this is a really interesting question. And I think, you know, what, what, um, what Foucault means by carceral and what I mean by carceral are a little bit different. Okay. So the idea of the carceral for, for Foucault had to do very much with a certain sort of extension of governmentality throughout uh, society. And I do think that there are some people, uh, Dylan Rodriguez, for example, has written some really uh, provocative, radical pieces on how university spaces are carceral as well um, in that Foucauldian vein. I think it's really um, important that we not blur the distinction between the sort of carceral in a more 
uh, strict sense and a looser notion, notion of the carceral. And again, this is, this is something also that I think comes into some of the work that I've read, critical of anti-black racism, the notion that there are actual prisoners and other black people who are prisoners in waiting, and that the, the status of the prisoners and the status of the prisoners in waiting is an equivalent status. I just don't. So when you say prisoners in waiting, what do you mean by that? Other black folks. Okay. Okay. So this is what this is what the an analysis um, might be that 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 given a culture of anti black racism, whether they're in prison now, they're prisoners in waiting, and that that the status between these two is the same. Now I think there's an important important sense in which you know there is a very uh, both uh, psychological and effective but also statistical way in which, yeah, of course, there one in three black men will be incarcerated at one point in time. So, yeah, okay, so there, there is that sort of prisoner-in-waiting thing. But the idea that these are all the same, um, I think is really important to, uh, to push back against because there's an imp- a, a sense in which those who are currently ensnared in some of the many tentacles of, of the system of mass incarceration are experiencing a certain kind of, I want to, I want to sort of draw on the work of one of my students, sort of what, uh, sort of a triple consciousness that is in some ways fundamentally different from the double consciousness <laughs> that we have among, you know, other people. So I think there's a sense in which, yeah, there's parallels, but at the same time, there's something very different about really being denied. So one of the things I say about captivity is that what, what one of the key features of captivity is that not only are you confined and controlled, but your basic needs have to be satisfied by those who control you. I just, just think about that for a second. Your basic needs have to be satisfied by those who control you. That violation of your, I want to say, dignity, but it could be in your independence, it could be your autonomy, it could be your freedom. It, that is a injury that shouldn't be overlooked. And it's fundamental different injury than the carceral space of the university, for example. And sure, we're all limited in various ways. None of us have full freedoms. And those limitations sort of track racial lines, gender lines, you know, sexual orientation lines, all sorts of lines, class lines. But the idea of the carceral for me is that there's, there is a sense in which your very basic abilities to take care of yourself are stripped from you. And that's different. That's different. And so I want to, I want to push back on this sort of expanded notion of the carceral. I don't want it to be limited to prisons, but I don't want it to expand to sort of any place where there's kind of a governmentality happening. You say that at the core of various functions of a carceral system, there is what you call a carceral logic. What exactly is that logic and what are its many types? I have been thinking about what this this logic does and what I think it does. And, and here, let me, let me it, it's kind of complicated, um, so I want to sort of go into it a little bit. Um, so I've been thinking about the carceral logic that underlies these sort of mutual sort of systems as one that perpetuates what Orlando Patterson called social death. And here I'm also drawing on insights that Lisa Gunther has shared with us in her work on solitary confinement. And so the idea is that there's a sense in which 
those who are subject to carceral, the carceral logics are not just dominated, although they are dominated, but they're fundamentally denied a certain level of relationality. They're exposed to, exposed to a kind of excess violence. And they are also, I mean, this is, Sadia Hartman puts it this way, they're sort of, sort of, own, they, they can be owned, they can be fungible, they can be traded, they can be moved. Um, so the logic, it kind of maps onto what Orlando Patterson describes as, as social death. And what that does is it creates this kind of, forgive the technical term, but sort of an ontological category of other. It's, it's an other that's sort of kept at odds with the, the center, the white center, the human center. And that logic, the carceral logic is what holds the center. So it, it really causes a deep, both sort of experiential and emotional and, yeah, experiential and emotional uh, distance. And so it's, it's carceral logics perpetuate that otherness. I mean, let me give you, let me give you an example and I'm going to parallel this example. So one of the things that happens currently in European zoos is that um, animals are allowed to reproduce and then the offspring are killed. That's just the standard practice really? in these zoos. Yeah. In the United States with zoos, um, they usually use birth control. Now, there's pros and cons here. We can get into a long talk about that. I don't, I don't want to go there. But, but the idea is that you can, you, what you do is you move animals around to breed, and then you kill the offspring so that you can continue to move animals around to breed and continue this, this sort of cycle and keep, keep the good ones or the genetically more sort of valuable ones. Now, this is, to me, a great example of a carceral logic, right? Because it's fundamentally about disposability. Now, think about the parallel of taking mothers who have committed some, you know, maybe serious, maybe not so serious crime and ripping them from their families. So this is part of the way in which the idea that relations um, aren't going to matter or don't even matter to those who we sort of keep as others or think of as others. So that's just one example of what I have in mind by... Um, the the effects of a carceral logic. So there's no there's no value. The animals in zoos or people who are incarcerated, they're not even thought of as beings that are relational or worthy of having relations. And it, you know, moving people. One of the things that happens in maximum security prisons, as you probably know, is if you end up becoming too relational within the prison space, you're then moved to a new space. And this just is so reminiscent of all sorts of ways in which animals are, they're not, you know, especially zoo animals, they're not commodities in the sense that people don't usually buy and sell zoo animals, but they're treated as fungible and transferable and sort of as beings that, you know, their, their social relations aren't really something that people need to attend to. So but for those who are thinking about doing some kind of social change in response to the carceral right. system, yeah. the carceral logic, there may be a problem. How, how might the carceral logic itself get in the way of social change? And, yeah. and what can people do in response to that? Yeah, that is an amazingly important and excellent question. And I mean, I do think 
that one of the things that is really tricky about thinking about um, the problems of the carceral as akin to this notion of social death is that it does seem that there might not be a way of undoing it because it's, it's part and parcel. It's integral to the system that we know. Um, and so there's not going to be a whole lot of room for making reforms in that system because the system requires both the insider and the outsider, as it were. And so that does seem to suggest that there's going to be a problem for making uh, social change or achieving social justice. Now here, I am not probably the most sort of hopeful at the moment, especially given the state of the world. But um, I do think that some of the sort of independent notions about, for example, um, black study that Robin Kelly and, and uh, Fred Moten have been talking about, the ways in which sort of autonomously, independently creating what Jared Sexton calls the social life of social death. So to recognize these systems and to resist from within one's own newly created form. And I think, you know, I actually have to say that prison education work for me is a part of that. It's a way of trying to generate or at least provide certain skills for imagining another way that the world could be. And I think in the same way, a certain kind of activism for other animals, it's just, for some people, it's just so weird to think, what? You're, you're interested in like animals? Why are you interested in animals? Like opening up that possibility means that we have to reimagine a whole bunch of different kinds of relationships. So part of it is, is to sort of imagine a different world. If you think about it in political, philosophical terms, for example, um, you know, Marx called for an end of capitalism. Well, that, I mean, that's pretty radical. I don't know if that's going to actually happen. And we can't quite imagine what it, the world is going to look like after that. Imagining sort of a destruction of a carceral logic that fundamentally upholds a division between white humanity and black people and animals. I mean, that, that's kind of a, I, I don't, I don't know that I know what exactly that could look like. But I think that there's new ideas for thinking that through. I also think, and this is some of my other, other work on this, that in what I call the entangled empathetic relationships, now again, there's, there's, that would take us in a whole different direction. But I think that one of the, one of the things that I think is fundamentally important is to sort of start by all of us recognizing that we're in relationships of all sorts that track all different kinds of political, economic, um, racialized, religious, and gendered and class aspects. And so once we recognize these relationships as relationships, we could start to reflect on sort of how we're imp individually implicated. And so I think that there's ways there that we might be able to imagine a way to make social change in light of these very deeply problematic social constructs. So as, we, as we've been talking, for some people, they have been imagining when they think about prisoner, they have been imagining maybe a black prisoner. Or mm -hmm. I think most people have been imagining an adult prisoner of sorts. And, and I want to go back to the school question just a little bit. And I know that was just for an example as it relates to carceral spaces, and we were really talking about universities. But I'm, I'm thinking about a school-to-prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about lots of videos that we have been privy to of school police, whether that is taking a young girl and slamming her in a desk, 
whether that is breaking a, a young boy's jaw. Um, and we're, we're seeing these police problems and even kids being arrested, where, whether that is a, a, a five-year-old touching um, or playing around with another girl and then getting a sexual assault charge, things that we never would have heard of when we were younger. So I, I want to know if you can just provide, because if I don't know if you reject the notion that that is itself a carceral space, but I wonder if you can just provide some analysis about what is currently going on in the school system as it relates to incarceration and policing. So, I, I mean, that I, I think those are incredibly important. Now, what I would, what I would, I mean, I don't want to make this sound like a sort of silly semantic distinction, but I would just, I would just think about that as a problem of criminalization that's happening for primarily, but not exclusively, black people, including black children. And I think what's happening is that the educational spaces, the schools, the the grammar, the you know, the early schools, the the schools where you're doing kindergarten and first grade and up until, you know, all the way up through high school have become these crim- these sites of criminalization. Um, and I think that that is another part of the problem of um, this general idea. So in that sense, yes, um, those are, those are spaces in which the carceral logic is operating for sure. Um, and it's a really, it's a really dangerous notion because what's ending up happening here is that you have um, children that, as you're saying in the past, you know, there would maybe be detentions or there would maybe be, you know, community work that you would have to do if you got in trouble in school. Now you get, you, you get in trouble in school, which most kids are getting in trouble. I mean, I, I got into, everybody gets in trouble in school. Um, and, but now it's that you're becoming criminalized and, and you're being put into the juvenile justice system. And we know that the ju- many people who are incarcerated um, as juveniles end up if they get out of the system, which most of them do, end up in the adult populations in prisons. And so part of what's happened, I think, is that increasingly, I mean, I'm not an education expert, but increasingly, I think that teachers and administrators in schools, particularly in um, less, in communities in which there are less, there are less resources, are finding it easier to deal with problems by outsourcing, which is something that the society is doing in all sorts of ways, right? So outsourcing, but in, in this case, um, really contributing to our terrible problem of mass incarceration. And I think the other thing I wanted to say about this, and this is one of the things that's related to sort of the prison education work I've been doing, is that um, there's another problem that sometimes the kids are acting out because they're not getting engaged in the material that they're learning. And so this, again, I'm not an education expert, but I just hear over and over and over again the ways in which the education system itself isn't providing students with the kind of material that will help them to think through um, issues in ways that are engaging and important and exciting. And that's another whole issue. Laurie, are, are you a prison abolitionist? I am a prison abolitionist. Why? Part of it is that I'm an abolitionist abolitionist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> so, um, so I actually think if we think about anti-black racism and if we think about the use of animals, that the concept of abolition, this is sort of gets back to this notion, is what we need for imagining a different set of social and political and personal and ethical relationships. And so... For me, prison abolition means to rethink how it is that we are going to solve social, economic, and political problems. I'm not denying there are problems. There are problems. 
Um, but that current system, the criminal justice system as it exists right now, is not one that is addressing those problems and in many ways is actually the source of the problems. And so the, an abolitionist perspective is one that says this system needs to be abolished. But I also think the system of anti-black racism needs to be abolished and the fundamental what we might call speciesist or human exceptionalist system of, of animal treatment also needs to be abolished. So I'm actually in favor of the imaginative possibilities that happen um, if we just were to kind of end these systems of disposability, end these systems of uh, disregard, end these systems of, you know, to to not put too fine a point on it, hate, and to to change them, not change them, but to just change this, the world so that we don't have those kinds of systems that perpetuate such violence and disregard. So, so Lori, how did you get, how did you end up teaching in prisons? So, okay, so I'm going to try to be short, but um, I, <laughs> I initially was teaching some women who I had, who were incarcerated, who I had personal and political connections to. And then in 2009, uh, at the place I work at Wesleyan, um, we started a prison education program. And I had always really imagined myself working with communities that didn't have access to kind of higher ed resources that places like Wesleyan do. So I was delighted to begin working with uh, men I've been teaching since 2009 in a maximum security men's prison. To someone who may be interested in volunteering in prisons or whether that's through education or offering some kind of service, what advice would you give to them? I think the, probably the most important advice is to realize that there's, an, there's, there's a lot we have to learn from, from these um, incarcerated people. And it's really important to go into these spaces um, with a commitment to a kind of epistemic equality, to not think that you're special or you're going to somehow give off this information that you have to them, that this, this, there's an equal there's an equal epistemic space and that we need to really figure out how to equalize these, these resources that they, they know things and you know things and this is a space uh, to share. I also want to say that it, anybody who's working in these spaces needs to make sure that they don't tur turn this into something about them. Um, everybody should be doing this. In my view, everybody should be, everybody should be teaching in prison. Everybody should be working with the, we have a huge number of ridiculously large number of people Two, two million people who are incarcerated and about seven million who are in some way or another involved, ensnared in different forms of criminal justice system. All these folks are in, people we can learn from and people we can share resources with and, and are definitely uh, deserving of attention, partly because the way in which educational resources are currently distributed is just really, really, really unjust. And so those of us who have some resources to share ought to be sharing. Speaking of things that you can learn, can you name at least three things that, that you have learned from your students? I've learned so many things. So um, the three, the three things. Hmm. Uh, well, one thing for sure um, is I have learned so much about strength and courage. I know that's not like a, you know, not the thing you normally imagine learning uh, in an educational space, but um, strength and courage. Part of it is that it takes a lot of courage to, you know, delve into philosophy um, if you're incarcerated because philosophy isn't 
always looked at as something that's pretty that's useful and so that takes us a fair amount of courage i've also learned a tremendous amount about the importance of the black intellectual tradition in teaching um and and that has been really important for me in terms of both my work on campus as well as in prison and and i have integrated more and more and more writings from that tradition, the black intellectual tradition, into my teaching, um, whatever, wherever I'm teaching. Third thing, hmm, I guess one of the things that's been really useful and important, and I learned from the men from the first class I taught, actually, in history of political philosophy class, is that it's super important to pay attention to the context in which people are doing philosophy. And I know that we talk about, some of us, particularly feminist philosophers, talk about context is important. But, you know, it was so, when we teach philosophy, we often don't think about, you know, why was, why was Thomas Hobbes writing what he was writing? Why was Marx writing what he was writing? Why was Rawls writing what he was writing? What was going on? And the men over and over ask these questions that aren't normally asked that help me to recontextualize but also revalue the context in which these philosophical ideas are being generated so to contextualize the philosophical work that's another really important thing i've learned from the men i teach laurie thank you so much for this conversation i learned a lot thank you for more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.